Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. I'm your host, James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. While people on the east coast of Australia have been dealing with major flooding, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released the second part of its latest report. The report on how climate change is affecting people and the planet says that climate change impacts such as extreme weather are mounting faster than scientists predicted a decade ago. Even if global warming is stopped at 1.5 degrees, which is not the trajectory we're on, natural disasters will quadruple and 14% of species will be at higher risk of extinction. In Australia, climate change is already exacerbating extreme weather events like heat waves and fires. Ecosystems like coral reefs and kelp forests are at risk for irreversible damage and collapse. There is still time to avoid the worst impacts and adapt to those that are already happening, but the window is closing rapidly, the report says. Today we're going to hear from a researcher who is looking at how Antarctica is changing. But first, here's an announcement. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Last month, scientists studying satellite images of Antarctica noticed a worrying sign. Antarctic sea ice had reached its lowest level ever recorded, breaking the previous record set in 2017. The freezing of Antarctica's sea surface each winter is the biggest seasonal change on the planet. Each year the ice goes by three times the size of Australia and then shrinks again in the warmer months. It's vital we understand what's happening to sea ice because, as we'll hear, it plays an essential role in Antarctica's ecosystems. I spoke to Klaus Miners from the Australian Antarctic Division to find out more. Hi Klaus, can you tell us why sea ice is so important for Antarctic wildlife? Oh yeah, there are multiple reasons. So sea ice is um, actually frozen ocean water and every year around the Antarctic continent the ocean freezes and um, the frozen ocean then covers a vast area during maximum extent um, almost three times the size of Australia. And this ice forms a thin skin on the surface of the ocean, so it detects the ocean physics, the exchange of heat. Um, for example, it, it, yeah, it's an insulation on the 
ocean. It's highly reflective, so it keeps the ocean dark and cool. And then CIS has multiple ecological um, functions. So it serves as a platform for, um, for example, seals and penguins. They use it as a breeding and resting platform. Um, the sea ice, um, as I said, uh, keeps the ocean cool and dark, so it really affects how phytoplankton, microscopic algae, um, live um, in the water column below the ice. So it really shuts down um, algal growth in winter, but when the sea ice melts in summer, it actually is a primer for big phytoplankton blooms because it also fertilizes the ocean, so some nutrients get sucked up into the sea ice in winter and then are released into the water in spring just when the sun comes back. And then one other thing is also important, that's really my particular interest, is that there's microscopic algae that live inside the ice flows and they grow early, they are actually attached to the subsurface of the ice, so they, they are a little bit higher in the ocean system, get a light a little bit earlier when the sun comes back in spring, so they grow early. And they are important for krill, and Antarctic krill is a, is a crustacean, and it's super important. It's like a key species, we call it a key species, because it transfers energy from the algae straight to higher trophic levels, like whales, penguins, and seals, which all feed on krill. So, and krill need these ice algae um, to survive winter, particularly larval krill, which can't starve for long periods. So there's like a complex system, and the sea ice affects the physics, the chemistry, and the ecology of the ocean. So basically it's absolutely integral to Antarctic ecosystems. Yeah, it's um, really like one of the key drivers of, of many processes. So Antarctic ecosystems, because we have this um, at high latitudes, we have this high seasonality, and the ice is on top of that seasonality, so sometimes increases it, as I said, for example, about the light, but then it triggers the spring blooms. Yeah, it's really integral. So can you tell us a bit about the research and what you're looking for? You mentioned looking at algae that live in the sea ice. What, what are you... What sort of knowledge are you looking, what sort of gaps in knowledge are you looking to fill in there? Um, so um, I'm particularly, so how much, pretty much a basic question is how much algae are there and when do they grow and what are the, the, the things that help them grow or reduce their growth. So at the moment I'm working really, um, the classical idea is that we, we go out on and we go on, on a voyage, we, we take a ship down south, we hop on an ice floe, we take ice cores and then we analyze them, for example, for nutrient concentrations and also for how many algae are there and where are they vertically distributed in this ice core. So we, we go on an ice floe, the ice is normally one to two meters thick, then we cut the ice core into sections and do all these analyses. That's very time consuming. And we, for example, I, I did a collation of all the data we have, and I said earlier, we have 20 million square kilometers of ice, and really the sampling we did is less than a soccer field mm. in, in 25 years. And so we have to, now I'm working on new methods where we use, for example, remotely uh, operated vehicles, so tethered platforms that we can uh, send under the ice, and they, we put um, cameras on them and very smart light sensors and that helps us now to map ice algae so rather than taking a small ice core we can now start mapping ice flows at different times of the year and we can also look what are krill for example doing under the ice and getting all this information to 
Mm, so it's a pretty high-tech operation. Do you ever have to jump in the very cold water? No, I fell in, but <laughs> <laughs> I never... No, um, the, the diving is fantastic, and I have worked with diving programs, but I never um, dove under sea uh, or did some diving under sea ice. And um, it's also logistically uh, just yeah, immense. You know, mm. you need special doctors sometimes on the ship. You need... Um, uh, yeah, chambers, rescue chambers for the divers in case there is an accident. And now we, we primarily use these robotic things, and um, it's also a very fast advancing um, field, so they become cheaper and better and easier to handle and smaller. So it's really um, where we are going at the moment. Mm. So this year the sea ice has reached a, a record low, but the trend in Antarctic sea ice is, is complicated. Can you tell us a bit about how the sea ice is changing? Yeah, so we, um, we have like good satellite data since the late 1970s. And um, for, the, uh, for Antarctic sea ice, and that's very much in contrast to Arctic sea ice, which has been declining at a really rapid um, rate over these last 40 years. Antarctic sea ice for the first 30 years showed a really small increase. That was a bit of a paradox. We didn't know why that was. And then we had, uh, for example, a maximum high in 2014, which then was followed by the first record low in 2017. And this record low or minimum was now um, yeah, um, superseded by a new record low um, just two weeks ago. And so we have this suddenly this very high amplitude. And sea ice, um, as I said, is a thin layer on the surface of the ocean and the southern ocean, so it's affected by ocean and atmospheric heat, so processes. So it's affected by ocean currents and atmospheric wind, for example. So it's just so a lot of, of complex um, factors control the extent of sea ice. And the extent is also one thing we can see with the satellites, so it's just the distribution, but we can't see really at the moment the thickness. And we don't know the full volume. So sometimes maybe a year there's a lot of thin sea ice, there's the same amount of sea ice, but it's just widely distributed over the ocean. So this is also um, a little bit adds to the complexity to understand that. Mm. And some little... Um, um, and we also, these records, they look at the entire continent or around the entire uh, southern ocean. And um, there's, of course, a regional effect. There's uh, at the Antarctic Peninsula. So, for example, there was a long-term decline in sea ice while the overall extent was extending over the first um, 30 years. So we, we have also regional patterns, which complicate the picture. Mm. But overall, if, if the sea ice does continue to climb, that's bad news for the wildlife that depends yeah, on sea so, ice. Yeah, so um, um, for ice-associated ecosystems, so um, climate models, they are not really that well in really simulating what we observe as a satellite. So our, our confidence in them is still low. However, if we look at the models, and that's the best tools we have, um, they predict a decline of sea ice by the end of the century by around 30% in, or 25% in extent and 30% in volume. So the ice will, there will be less area covered and the ice will be thinner. And um, that opens up a lot of ocean and um, we might actually get more 
more phytoplankton growth, so algal growth in the open ocean, but the ice-associated ecosystems and the species that really depend on the ice, they, they, they will be in trouble. Mm. So what can so, be done to protect sea ice wildlife? Of course, cutting greenhouse gas emissions is the big one, but on a more local scale, are there local conservation efforts in Antarctica? Um, well, there's lots of pressures on ecosystem world, worldwide, and um, you know, you, you have tourism in Antarctica. There's risk associated with running ships um, in Antarctica. Um, there's a fishing industry, so there is a krill fishery which is really well managed. So that's um, a really nice thing internationally um, by the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. And so krill catches are well below what we think is um, sustainable, but they could go up in the future. So we just keep, you know, we need good policy around that, um, good management strategies. Um, Marine protected areas have been um, established in Antarctica and the Ross Sea, for example. So that is really exciting to see. That's a good thing. And I think just keeping a look um, or just, yeah, keep a close look at all these things is important. And also um, understanding the system. So, um, you know, I think this, this decline or this minimum record in Antarctic sea ice is really um, like a, a call for scientists, really. Well, we have to watch it very closely now. We have to understand what are the drivers. Um, is this a harbinger of massive change? And what are the impacts on the ecosystems? Class, it must be an amazing place to work. What drew you to do Antarctic research? Germany, and it was kind of a coincidence in a way, but one day I, I studied marine biology and they asked me to bring um, water samples, but the river or the, the, the fjord where I lived was frozen, so I brought an ice sample and we studied that, and um, it, there were kind, yeah, kind of cool results or very surprising results coming out of that ice sample, and then I just ran into, yeah, people who mentored me, and so I got stuck into sea ice research, and then I worked a lot in the Arctic during my, my training back in, in Europe, but then also um, Antarctica was always this, yeah, interesting place to go and visit, and um, so I, I, yeah, I came down to Tasmania and never looked back, and yeah, just... I think it's a privilege to work down there. It's just an amazing place, and especially when you are on a ship. I get a bit seasick, which is <laughs> not so good. But if you hit the sea ice zone, the wildlife picks up. Um, there's, it's a very strange landscape, you know, very monotone colors, but um, in an amazing place. And normally people you work with, just, you know, you don't end up in Antarctica by accident, you mm. know. So normally I work with people who really like their job, they're highly motivated, and they're just fantastic. So mm -hmm. working in, in these teams and being supported by yeah, so many people really contribute to this. So that is, I think, the most fun part. And now I'm getting a bit older. We can train a new generation of scientists. So that is a privilege in this job and yeah, why I, I really like it. That was Klaus Miners from the Australian Antarctic Division. After the break, we're going to hear from a woman with a bold plan to draw attention to the plight of migratory shorebirds. But first, here's a song. This is Moju with Sometime. In my heart. 
You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Is that a reason to start? Is that a reason to... listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, and that was Moju with Sometime. Australia's migratory shorebirds make some of the longest journeys of any animals. From overwintering in Australian wetlands, some fly over 10,000 kilometres to the Arctic Circle to breed, and then they fly all the way back again. Along the way, though, they face numerous threats, particularly development of their vital stopover feeding grounds. Many shorebird populations have crashed, and some species are now critically endangered. Amelia Formby wants to draw attention to the plight of seabirds, and she's doing it, doing it in a pretty radical way. She wants to fly around Australia in her microlite. Hi, Millie. Can you tell us a bit about the Wing Threads project? What's the grand plan? Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, well, Wing Threads is uh, an adventure flying project that I came up with a few years ago. So the plan is to fly my microlite around Australia this year, uh, starting in Broome and flying anti-clockwise around the country. And on the way, I'm going to stop at schools and libraries and share how amazing and awesome migratory shorebirds are with students and teachers. 
uh, through my new children's book, A Shorebird Flying Adventure. And there's also, a, a, shall we say, an extension grand plan after the Loop of Australia, perhaps? Oh, yes. So the, <laughs> the project came about because they had a, a dream years ago, this big dream that I could learn to fly a microlight and follow the shorebirds on migration from Australia all the way up to Siberia, which is where they breed. And one day, yes, I'd still like to do that, but obviously, you know, you've got to take these things one step at a time. So I'm starting with a, a lap of Australia, and then I guess we'll see where we go from there. I'd say that's a that's a pretty good and a pretty big first step. Yes, it is a big first step. <laughs> so, Millie, can you tell us a bit about what's so special about shorebirds and migratory waders? Yeah, yeah. So uh, shorebirds, they often get mixed up with seabirds, so... Um, they're not like silver gulls and uh, the birds, mutton birds, you often hear people think are shorebirds, so they don't have webbed feet um, and they can't land on water. And what's amazing is they do these epic migrations all the way up to the Arctic and back again, which is a 25,000-kilometre round trip every year. And some of them, like the Bartow Godwit, fly directly from Alaska back to New Zealand over the Pacific Ocean uh, non-stop over nine days, which is, uh, you know, a near 13,000-kilometre journey. And it's just mind-boggling that these birds can fly such epic distances like that. And even uh, the smaller shorebird species that comes to visit Australia, the redneck stint, it's only a little bird that weighs about as much as a tin can, about the size of a sparrow, and uh, they can fly up to 5,000 kilometres in one go. Which is just mind-boggling. Mm. So, yeah, when you hear about epic feats like that, it's pretty hard not to be inspired. Mm. And they also face um, some quite serious threats um, on these journeys that that they're travelling along. Is there any particular species that you're, or particular group of species that you're raising awareness of in this project? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, the birds, when they're stopping along the migration path, which is known as the East Asian, Australasian Flyway, I should mention that, and Australia, Australia is the southernmost destination, uh, they're stopping at wetlands along the way to rest and refuel, and that those wetlands are like a chain with links in it, so if you lose one, it's like losing a link in the chain, and the whole chain fails. So it's really important that the birds have those stopover sites and particularly around the Yellow Sea in China, that area has been reclaimed for industry and development and agriculture over the years and I think about 65% of the mudflats in that area have been reclaimed in the last 30 years and the species that rely most heavily on that site as a stopover point, which are eastern curlew and curlew sandpiper for example, They've seen up to 80% decline in their numbers over the past 40 years. So, yeah, absolutely raising awareness for uh, these birds, but also wanting to put our Australian wetlands into this global context of an ecological network. And just I just think shorebirds are the most um, uh, amazing teachers in that regard because they really demonstrate how our local wetlands matter on a global scale and the importance of protecting our wetlands here at home. And it's not just for the birds, it's for us too because those wetlands provide us with important ecosystem services like filtering our water and providing us with food and recreation. Uh, they protect the coast from storms and they buffer uh, against climate change. So 
it's really a way of connecting people back to nature and seeing ourselves as part of a, a much bigger ecological system rather than as separate to it. And I think shorebirds are a, a beautiful narrative to introduce people to that. So you're starting in Broome. Can you give us a quick tour of some of the special wetlands that you will be uh, stopping by in your loop of Australia? Yeah, yeah. So obviously Broome and around Roebuck Bay is the starting point because it's the shorebird capital of Australia. And there's tens of thousands of shorebirds, uh, sometimes up to hundreds of thousands of shorebirds show up there. Uh, every year, which is a, an amazing sight to see, so wanting to highlight that one. And then obviously uh, places like Morton Bay in Toonda Harbour in uh, Queensland, uh, Corner Inlet in Victoria, uh, the Peel Harvey Estuary in WA, uh, the Adelaide International Bird Sanctuary in um, South Australia, and uh, also up, up around the top end, then there's so many shorebird sites up there that we know very little about because they occur in remote areas. So really just wanting to be able to showcase those wetlands on film as I fly around from a, you know, literally give people a bird's eye view. I'm hoping to live stream some of the flights that I do as well so, so people can share that experience with me and come on, come on a shorebird flying adventure. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about how you became interested in conservation and shorebirds in particular? Yeah, sure. So I was studying uh, zoology at Melbourne Uni and um, I was also working part-time actually as a tapestry weaver mm. at the Australian Tapestry Workshop. So my life before I was a scientist, I was an artist. Wow. And um, we were collaborating on a tapestry with uh, John Walsley, who's a well-known Australian artist, and he'd done a mural in the city about shorebirds, and that was actually my first introduction to shorebirds. Mm. And shortly after that, I got involved with the Victorian Wader Studies Group mm. in um, Victoria Banding and Flagging Shorebirds with Clive Minton, and after that I started doing expeditions up to Broome and volunteering up there. And uh, I just really love being part of uh, the Shilberg community and there's a very passionate group of volunteers who are part of those two groups and I also love the connections that you make with people throughout the flyway and hearing about birds that you've tagged show up in other countries throughout the flyway. It's, um, yeah, it's a really emphasize for me. Mm. It must be very rewarding to make those, particularly those international connections. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It just really highlighted for me the importance of uh, community when it comes to grassroots conservation mm. and, and wanting to share those stories with people because I don't think we hear about those stories enough when it comes to environmental work. Mm. So you're actually going to fly yourself around Australia. How did you get into flying and how are you feeling about such a massive journey? <laughs> I was working at University of WA, uh, this is after I finished my degree at Melbourne Uni, and um, one of my friends there in animal biology, another technician, said he and his brother wanted to fly around Australia in a microlight and raise money for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And I went, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? And then the next day as I was driving to work, this idea just popped into my head that, oh, I could learn to fly a microlight and follow the shorebirds. To Siberia and I went oh wow that's actually 
really exciting idea. I could do that if I wanted to. And um, I'd never flown before. I had no interest in becoming a pilot. Like, there's no aviation in my family, nothing like that. So I had no sort of aviation background to go on. Uh, so I just decided I'd better see if I like flying a microlite and um, book myself in for what's called a trial instructional flight uh, with uh, an instructor out at Sky Sports Flying School, about 200 k's east of Perth in, in a town called York. And uh, I, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was one of the best things I'd ever done and I just got the flying bug really hard and uh, started doing my... Uh, recreational pilot certificate and I completed that after about a year I got my passenger and cross-country endorsements and yeah went from there pretty much wow good on you all right Millie what can people do to get involved and support um, your lap of Australia yeah so uh, I'm crowdfunding at the moment to cover the costs of uh, food, fuel, maintenance and accommodation for myself and a two-person ground crew later this year. So they can go to uh, chuffed.org forward slash project forward slash a shorebird flying adventure and donate to the campaign. Beautiful. And you also have a book coming out? That's right. It's called A Shorebird Flying Adventure. It's um, written by Jackie Karen and illustrated by myself. And that's through CSIRO Publishing, and you can pre-order that. That's part of the campaign as well. That was Amelia Formby talking about her amazing Wing Threads project, and you can find out more at wingthreads.com. And that's all we've got time for this week. If you'd like to listen to this show again, you, or any of our previous episodes, you can head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash radioblue. We'll see you next week, and in the meantime, stay well. <laughs>